This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olsher. All righty. Welcome to another edition here of Reinvention Radio. I am super excited. Because I'm hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello. Richie Ote hanging out as well. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to oh, see boy, you. He's got it under control in headquarters over there back in the studio. Kelly's got it under control at headquarters. You know, our, you know our team here. And super excited. Um, number one, because we're coming uh, up on uh, one of my favorite times of the year, uh, which actually happens. We, we get in, in, in reinvention radio land, Christmas actually happens twice a year. It's not only, of course, every week with our amazing guests, um, but it's our new media summit. Yes. And uh, and so we have the next new media summit coming up here. And by the time this airs, it may be right around that same time. It may have actually already happened. I don't know. We'll have to see when this one actually airs. But twice a year, we get together at the new media summit. And are you guys, are you super excited for super this? Super excited. Yeah. Good. It's going to be uh, it's gonna be a rocking good time. we got people coming in from all over the globe once again to hang out with us and uh, and and join us in San Diego where 150 attendees have the well let's just call it what it is a very rare opportunity to meet 40 top podcasters and pitch them on who they are and what they do and literally get booked on the spot so uh, yeah got a 100% track record of people coming to the summit and uh, leaving with bookings in hand and the average summit attendee actually ends up with uh, around a dozen bookings or so what's the farthest someone's going from this year um, definitely Australia I know we got an Australia coming in that's always a hike coming over to, to California um, definitely UK and uh, Canada Can- always yeah Canada for sure and a couple spots in uh, Europe as well so <laughs> Uh, well, needless to say, September is sold out. But if you want to join us at uh, the next one, we'd love to have you there. That'll be March uh, in San Diego, March 9th through the 11th, uh, again here in San Diego. And you can get all of the info there at newmediasummit.net. And I will say that uh, historically we sell out uh, about three months in advance. So as soon as tickets go on sale, we encourage you to grab one and join us. And, of course, hang out with the team here at Reimagined Radio. Come learn how to leverage and monetize the power of new media uh, and come get yourself booked on shows. So, Kelly to, said Singapore. Uh, Singapore. There you go. Wow. People coming in from all over. And, um, and really just also want to take a moment here to acknowledge so many awesome folks who have taken the time to rate and review and subscribe to reinvention radio on their channel of choice whether it's the itunage of the world or spotify or stitcher etc etc thank you very much for taking the the moments to rate and review and subscribe to the show Uh, let me just say uh, here that we want to say a a very special thank you to lisa we'll start with lisa and then harold uh, as well but uh, lisa mizell said i love the reinvention radio podcast thanks for the five stars on that Uh, lisa appreciate it steve has that easy listening conversational past djk <laughs> which I love. The guests have such great stories, super inspiring to listen to the different episodes and the Reinvention Radio crew makes each show fun. Thank you for that, Lisa and Harold. Also with the five-star review, thank you for that. And uh, and again, you know, look, if we don't deserve five stars, you don't have to give us five stars. We'll take them, but whatever it is, thank you for or that. Or designate them. Mary gets five. Mary gets five. Richie gets four. <laughs> Steve gets two. So yeah, there you go. Uh, but Harold Alwell said, the world is changing and I'm listening. Steve is right on it every day every hour every day brings some huge change how to keep up how to stay calm in the midst of changing lifestyles beliefs technologies the reinvention radio crew finds great guests and topics for these potentially challenging times all right thank you for all those we'll keep reading them off as you guys keep putting them in and uh and just super excited because we always find the most amazing guests at the new media mm-hmm. summit as a matter of fact uh you'll find that a lot of the guests that we have on you've never heard of before and we take great pride in bringing those guests to you, people that you haven't heard from a million times and not knocking, you know, some of the, the folks that you might know who have the names in the world. But, you know, everybody knows who those those, those mm, usual suspects are. You know, everybody knows what they stand for, what they believe in. And picking some of those folks off is just kind of, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's easy pickings. What's hard 
is finding people that you haven't heard from a million times. Mm -hmm. People like you that the people in the world need to hear from. Oftentimes they need to hear from you more than they need to hear from, you know, those those talking heads. So we take great pride in finding people that the world hasn't heard from a million times. And that's what you see at the New Media Summit all the time are just uh, the most incredible people with the most incredible stories. And frankly, we prioritize the guests that we bring on now based on what we hear at the New Media Summit. And today's um, today's guest is certainly a prime example of that. And let's welcome Jill to Reinvention Radio. Jill, how long ago were you at the uh, how long ago were you at the New Media Summit? So the first one I was at was actually here in Austin, Texas, where I live. So that was a year and a half ago, I believe. Yep. And then I went to the second one in Tampa. In Tampa, okay. And are you going to come back yeah. and join us in San Diego anytime soon for one of the future ones? Maybe. <laughs> uh, in the future, but unfortunately, I can't make this next one, and I love San Diego, yeah. but um, dates just don't work. Yeah, no so. worries. So um, and we'll, we'll talk about your New Media Summit experience later on in the show, but want to make sure that we give sure. you an ample opportunity here to talk about you and all the fun things that you're up to. So we found you at the summit and knew we had to have you on. It, it's, I mean, it's just, it's so interesting to me. You just, you, you, you never know when you meet someone, what their story is and, you know, what, what they've experienced in life. You just you just never know. I mean, so many people have just the most unbelievable stories. You're, I mean, you have lots of claims to fame, but one of the more interesting claims to fame that you can uh, speak to uh, is the fact that you were, your family was very involved with uh, the McDonald's, the, world's, uh, the world of McDonald's, very early on. How, how early was your family involved with McDonald's? Their first store was opened in 1959, so it was year five for the corporation, and they opened McDonald's number 150, so it was the 150th store. Wow. Which and city was that in? Ocala, Florida, where I was born. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And is That's that... That's why they went down there from is, Chicago. They, they lived in Chicago, both born and raised in Chicago, and McDonald's gave them Ocala as their first location, so they moved down there. Wow. Just out of curiosity, did they, did they have a relationship with the company at all? It, it seems just so odd. I mean, well, I guess if you were from the Chicago area, then you mm -hmm. would have heard about McDonald's because of their original location right. in, uh, what was it, Oak Brook, I think, was their first? Yes. Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, if you were in the Chicago area, then you may have seen what was going on there. Is is that just how they became familiar with what was going on with McDonald's, because they were customers? No, actually, um, some friends of my dad had opened a store, and they were looking to open another one, and they asked him if they, he wanted to come in as a partner with them. And he decided not to, but asked my grandfather if he would go in with him because they didn't have the funds, they had no money. My mm -hmm. dad used to say they didn't have two nickels to rub together as they mm -hmm. started. And um, and so they decided to open their own franchise and they, my grandparents and parents opened the first one together as a result. And at the yeah. time, Ocala, I can't imagine, was exactly a, a booming hub of activity. How? How did they decide on Ocala? You said they wanted to move to Florida. I mean, you know, you're in Chicago and you say, okay, enough of the weather. Let's go someplace warm. That's fine if we're going to do this. So that might have a factor, but there's a lot of warm places. <laughs> so yeah, how, how on it, earth did they land on Ocala? It was actually decided by the corporation. McDonald's always chooses where they want the next door open. So it wasn't my parents' involvement at all. Uh, that was the location of the store for them to open. And there, you're right, there is nothing, it's horse country. It's beautiful, but it's horse country, and there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. There's not much there now, much less years ago. Um, but that was the reason they moved down there was specifically to open that. And it's interesting, Steve, because you just triggered a, a memory that there really was nothing there, so much so that McDonald's, um, my parents needed to hire women. And at the time, McDonald's did not hire women. Mm. And there weren't enough people in Ocala to work the store. So my parents asked corporate for permission to hire women, and, make, and that was the first store that actually did through my parents open um, a store that hired women. Do you remember what the cost of that franchise was in 59? 
I don't. That's an excellent. I need to ask my mom. Um, I know that she said they had to borrow a sum of like twenty thousand, or maybe it was forty thousand dollars. And she thought, "Oh my gosh, what are we doing? We will never ever be able to pay that back." Mm-hmm. Like it was just a huge risk. They had no idea what they were going into because, of course, it wasn't the McDonald's that we know now. So that I do know. Um, but I will have to find out. I'll circle back mm-hmm. to you on that. I have to find it's out exactly curious. how much that was. How many? Yeah. Did, how many did they own eventually? So different amounts throughout the years. Um, probably at most at one time was about fifteen or sixteen. Wow! And they, but they they ranged across from like Georgia, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, and Florida. Mm. And then of course some were sold, and you know, so it was not always that amount. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because a lot of what we've learned through some of the stories that have come out over the years, and even uh, you know the movie like The Founder, right, with mm-hmm. uh, Michael Keaton and so on. It's interesting to see how they, McDonald's, always looked at it more of a, of a real estate play. Mm-hmm. And we're just simply doing it That's for right. the real estate, and we need something on that land in order to pay for the real estate. But at the end of the day, it's just, you know, we're, we're doing this for the real estate. So is, and just help me understand this and help our audience understand this, is the structure when you own a McDonald's, is the structure such that you don't own the building and the real estate, you just simply operate the building that sits on the real estate that McDonald's owns? Yes, McDonald's owns the land, and the owner-operator then pays for rent, so to speak, to the corporation. I don't know about the building and all the equipment, how all that breaks down, but um, that's why, as said in the founder, that's really their huge success is that they own the land. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason they choose, too, where they want to open the next stores. But all the cash flow outside of, I assume there's a monthly franchise fee or something of that nature mm-hmm. that goes to fund marketing and advertising and so on, then mm-hmm. you have to buy all the all the cups and you have to buy all the, you know, the, the burger wrappers and, and even probably the meat and the buns and the pickles for that matter. You got to buy it all. So very lucrative from the standpoint of being McDonald's. But as you uh, have spoken to your parents over the years and obviously you have inside info, you know, as far as all this goes, but and we'll get to some other things here, but it's just rare that you get an opportunity to talk to someone on the inside like this. Is it lucrative for the operator as well? I mean, it must be if they're in, if they're if they're if they're saying yes to fifteen, sixteen locations over time. Yes, of course, because they wouldn't be in business if it wasn't lucrative, right? If they couldn't turn a profit and and a nice one, it's a it's a hard job. It's a lot of work. And, mm-hmm. I mean, in the beginning, my mom. I remember I was too little, but I remember her talking about that um, back in the inventory room, it's funny because exactly how the founder laid it out where he was designing the store and what station would go where, the fry station, next to the, you know, whether it was the grill or the, the shake machine, it was designed so that it created that perfect system to be able to have things flow to serve your customers as quickly as possible. And that was exactly the model of the store that I, stores that I remember working in growing up. And then the back was our... The, the storage room and where all the inventory was was kept and and the, for in the beginning McDonald's used to hand cut their own French fries hmm. and so my mom said you know my dad would be there so late at night working and then have to be there so early in the morning sometimes he would like sleep on the potato sack hmm. or the boxes in the back um, and so you know and as little girls and my sisters we used to eat lunch and go make our little forts in the, in the boxes in the storage room in the back. But um, so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, everything was inventory. I remember one of our first jobs, especially when we were little, it was too little to go up front, was, you know, inventory and counting all the, the fry boxes and putting rubber bands around, you know, every 50 or whatever it is, just keeping keeping track of all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Richie, I know you were kind of chomping at the bit there already. Oh, there's quite a few things. I just, I know we we like to go into reinventing and what people are doing now. And yeah. I, I, one of the things I definitely want to pull out of that, knowing where we're going to eventually go to with there is, mm-hmm. is the the customer experience aspect of it and those systems and processes that you were talking about, how important that is that there was consistency. Like, yeah, they wanted to... Mm-hmm 
yeah, they wanted to own that land, but it doesn't matter whether I've eaten McDonald's in Mexico, San Diego, Texas, Tokyo. Mm -hmm. It was the exact same thing every single time. It felt the same way. I mean, literally even in Tokyo, it was the strangest thing. Like this is the same, same amount of ketchup everywhere, same amount of pickles everywhere, that customer experience. And so Mm -hmm. I look forward to hearing what you kind of took out of that and what you're currently doing. So that I mean, that's I really have a future question coming, but I'm, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that customer experience piece that just how much of who you are now you got out of uh, that experience. Yes. You're hundred percent right. And I, I do, you know, I realize now looking back in, in the reinvention piece, how much of me, the invention of me in this aspect was so founded on all of those things that I, it's like through osmosis. It's really like a part of my DNA now. And um, again, like in the founder movie, and I remember learning when I, I, we, it's called dressing the bun, basically where you put the ketchup and the mustard and pickle or whatever goes on there. And it was very systematized. And that was the whole point. And my dad was very proud about the fact that you could go anywhere to any McDonald's anywhere and you could walk in and know what to expect you knew the flavor profile you knew the quantities you knew the texture the smell even and same thing i take pictures now when i travel of mcdonald's no matter where i go and it always intrigues me because you can find that big mac you can find those same things and then you can find the local flavors they take some of the traditional sandwich and then they'll add something that gives it a little local flair and the the Current, um, they just remodeled and, and moved more recently into a new building, the corporate building. And one of the things that I love is that I, I, their dining room, I haven't experienced it personally, but the dining room has these international flavors and sandwiches that you can buy over time because they want to really show the global aspect. And yet, the consistency. Consistency is cash, is what I say. And that's what McDonald's has done. They have perfected whether you like it or not. They have perfected the consistency, and I think that has really been the thing that's kept them number one in terms of their brand, um, you know, over all these years. Dang, I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, there's so much that can be uh, gleaned, I'm sure, throughout the, the years that you were there, where you, and just so everyone is clear, I mean, when it's a family business, you're you're actively involved with things, whether you like it or not. I mean, you, I believe you said you remember going back all the way to when you were seven years old of, uh, you know, picking up the phone and trying to trying to help people and, you know, do do things as far as all that's concerned. And, and that's all well and good. But did you end up making it into any sort of career? Did you actually join the family business outside of the obligation of what happens when you're a child and the family has a business? Well, interestingly, it wasn't really an obligation. I loved doing it. It was really fun. Mm. And so my first taste was that little seven-year-old girl who got to answer the phone because I was too little to do anything else. And my older sisters were working the shake machine. And then that was my first step up. And and the shake machine was literally the same multi-mixers that Ray Kroc sold to the McDonald's brothers which is how he met them and actually ended up creating McDonald's. And so we had that multi-mixer and had the flash uh, guard across it and had like five or six spindles, you know, and it was, you know, you had to spray out the, the syrup and you'd have to weigh out the, the milkshake and everything, the milk that went, and went into it, the frozen milk. But the, the flash guard didn't always work quite as well. And when we started out, we, my sisters and I used to test and we could tell who was taller and how much we had grown by where the splash hit us. <laughs> so when I was really little, of course, the splash guard was like right here. And as I as became a teenager and continued to work, I would see that splash move down my body as I grew. So it was always a great mm. measure and a fun thing. That's funny. Mm-hmm. And so at what point, though, did you say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, to – did they, did they sell mm-hmm. all the, the stores? Were you kind of forced out based on their decision? Did you mm-hmm. buy your way in? Like try to help us through that, that transition. Do, do they still own do – you, do you, does your family still own McDonald's? Yeah. So um, sadly, my dad passed away um, really young. Um, mm-hmm. He was actually 65. I think that's really young. For mm-hmm. me, it was really young. And he was, you know, in the prime of 
their, his life and his business and uh, never dreamed anything like this would happen. And so um, I was in my early 30s, and, and he talked about one of us maybe taking over and getting in the business and continuing, but he was mostly in Gainesville, Florida, Florida at that point, which is and the surrounding area, and sold off many of the stores because McDonald's now later on had determined that if you were going to expand, they wanted the owner-operator to live in the local area. So there was more hands-on and personal um, observation and overseeing what was going on. So that's, he sold off the Georgia, Tennessee, um, Alabama markets and really focused in in Florida. And, you know, I, I, I thought about it for a minute, but I, there was no way I was going to stay in Gainesville, Florida. I mean, it was great, but for a single person, there was just no life there. And so um, I kind of decided, and I loved fashion, so that was my first kind of invention of who I, who mm-hmm. I was professionally. Mm-hmm. And I followed that dream, and sadly, my dad uh, was diagnosed, and within six months, uh, passed away. And so pretty much soon thereafter, my mom was immediately in talks to sell the stores because she's an artist. That's not what she wanted to do. So mm-hmm. she sold the stores after my dad passed away. Yeah. yeah. And so just kind of give us a sense if you're willing to share. At, at that point, I mean, it obviously is going to vary by market. And, you know, if you've got the Rock and Roll McDonald's in downtown Chicago, I mean, that's going to be at one volume level. If you've got a a store in, you know, in Paducah, Kentucky, that's going to be another level. And, mm-hmm. you know, in Gainesville, Florida, it's probably going to be at another level. But uh, how does that, do you remember from from an exit standpoint, uh, how that is valued then? Because you don't have the real estate, you don't have the, the building. So you're ostensibly just selling, I would think, then the cash flow and the operations of of the business. Is can, mm-hmm. can you give us a sense of, of what a, a franchise from an ownership perspective would would actually then bring? Um, and you're correct that every store is different. I yeah. remember my parents even talking about that. Even you know, it everyone thinks McDonald's oh gold mine. It's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Every store is different. The locations. There are many factors that go into it. Um, but when the, there's a there's a value and there's a formula that they have in terms of determining what each store's value is worth, and then based on that they determine what that marker is, and and then they would negotiate a price based on that. Because mm-hmm. I'd imagine McDonald's is involved with that. There's some sort of approval process. You can't just put an ad in the paper and sell McDonald's to whoever, right? McDonald's needs to know they're going to run it the McDonald's way, right? Yes, absolutely. I don't know the the inside details of all that, the intimate details, um, but I know that <clears throat> my mom, of course, had spoken to corporate, <clears throat> and they knew about my dad. Actually, um, the the week after my dad was diagnosed, there was a McDonald's conference that he was very much looking forward to going to because he and my mom were going to be winning their 35-year anniversary award, and it sits in my office, actually. Mm. It's, it's my inspiration. And at that time, there weren't that many franchisors that had been in the business for 35 years. So, um, in fact, my dad had his first round of chemo and got the doctor's approval, got on the plane, and he went to that convention. That was his last one. And so everyone knew, you know, sadly what was going on. But um, so they... They didn't know they were going to sell right away, but so of course, my you know my mom was in touch with corporate, and then the person who ended up buying the stores, they were personally run. They weren't franchise stores, but um, so yeah, you know it's yeah yeah, and you know again, I appreciate you sharing some of the the background here. It's just it's it's seldom that we have an opportunity. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, come on, there's there's very few iconic brands. You know that, that mm-hmm. were at least that it, that attain that iconic like status, and you know we all grew up with it, and it's not going anywhere. As a matter of fact, my um, we're we're in the process of putting together a um, uh, we have a building under contract to build my wife's uh, first funeral home, and uh, and right next door to it is a, is a McDonald's. So you know yeah, <laughs> okay. everywhere everywhere you go. Um, there so you go. so what was Break the stock. right so. <laughs> Let me just make sure I'm clear on this. So what was the key takeaway then that you learned from that experience? And I know Richie kind of alluded to this a, a little bit already, and you, you talked about this a little bit already as well. But 
in terms of reinventing customer experience and really just being able to help companies to have a better relationship with with their tribe and with their prospects and ultimately with their customers what what was the key takeaway from from that period of your life and then as you said you get into fashion and some other things as well but from from that period of watching that over the years mm-hmm. what what was the primary takeaway for sure, it was how you treat people, how you talk to people, um, both your employees and the customers. And, you know, Ray Kroc had the philosophy that the customer is always right. And so it was always putting your customer's interests first. Regardless of what was going on, you found a solution that made them happy when they walked out the door. And seeing how the ethics and the, I think the, the values, the ethos that was created that my father started with, you know, his senior management on down and just creating the way they spoke to each other with respect and supporting one another and creating that true teamwork. And that translates out to how you speak to and take care of your customers. And I think that's something that's really stuck with me and been this common thread that I utilized throughout the multiple inventions of myself as I went on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, then there's um, kind of the school of thought when it comes to customer service and, and the whole customer experience itself is concerned. And, and, and I think the two can be used, to, you know, somewhat interchangeably. I mean, experience is what people feel, I would think, in terms of when you come into an environment or when you deal with a particular company and then customer service is I think more along the lines of what happens perhaps when issues arise or when you you know you, you just take someone through the process of working with you whether it's through a product or program or a service or whatever mm-hmm. it might be so I mean I think semantically there may be fine lines between the two um, but at the same token I think one of the, one of the old adages that that seems to I don't know if it's still held um, as fact, um, just wanted to make sure I had your opinion on this. Is the customer always right? Well, you know, a lot of years have passed and things have changed since those first days. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, the customers were very different from the customers today. And I think that, you know, with Ray Kroc, that was his philosophy, but I... I have to say today, I don't think the customer's always right. Mm -hmm. I think you need to make it right for them at that moment, and then you need to decide, is that customer the right customer for you? And I think today it it is a fine line, the difference, and I, I think that we're not talking about the same set of values, the same set of interactions, the way people behave, the expectations that are set today versus before. So um, that's a big debate that's going on right now, actually. Um, And I do think that's changed drastically. Yeah, and I know, Rich, you do a lot of stuff in e-commerce and so on, and and with the way that the world is online, one tweet... And you seem to be like you can call, you can call and you can be on hold and, and try to escalate an issue and and three days later you still don't have what you need. You send out one tweet and it seems like you know these companies respond right away. And 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 you know you can look at Yelp reviews, right? I mean, as there was actually a South Park episode that was pretty funny. I don't know if, if you guys have seen that mm-hmm. South Park. It's worth looking up. But South Park did an episode where. Um, Basically, all of South Park, all of the citizens of South Park position themselves as uh, Yelp reviewers. In other words, you know, I'm going to come into your restaurant. I'm going to leave, you know, I'm, I'm a critic. I'm going to leave a Yelp review. And so everyone was going into every restaurant getting everything for free because everyone was going to leave a bad Yelp review, right? And, and, and I got to tell you, it's scary, you know, I mean, because you, you don't want your your hashtag or your at, you know, whatever. I mean, like, you don't want any of that associated with anything bad. And and I will tell you, my wife is a die hard Yelp review person, not in terms of leaving reviews, but in terms of mm-hmm. before we go anywhere, like we're in a new neighborhood and she's looking for a place to eat, go to Yelp. If she's yeah. looking for a store to, you know, to go buy something, go to Yelp. It like, and 
and if it's not, you know, in the dark red, which means the four or five That's stars, right. That's she's right. like, nah, we'll go elsewhere. If it's orange or yellow or whatever, it's like, nah, yeah. you know? And so, and, and a lot of that I think isn't fair, right? Because the squeaky wheel always gets the grease, as they say. And like my wife will read all of those reviews, but she seldom leaves a review. So if she has a great experience, she doesn't leave a review. Oh, I don't mm-hmm. do it either. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm from speaking, I guess, for both of us then from that standpoint. But, but there's a lot that's, you know, people say it's kind of leveled the playing field and this, that, and the other. But at the same token, I think there are folks who are really using that to their advantage. So, I mean, in terms of customer service, the customer experience, and so on, what, what is your take? around social and just how those platforms have almost become just breeding grounds for for giving the customer an unfair advantage. It it is huge. And fair or not fair, it is just like your wife does. That's what people do. That's what I do. And that's actually part of of my consulting with people is you don't want to be in that in that orange. You need to be red. And interestingly, Harvard Business School did a, a research and found that even a one-star increase on Yelp correlated to an increase of 5 to 9% in their business revenue. Mm. And so it just really, I think, um, points out how strong people rely on whether they know you or not. They look to social media. They look for social proof. And, if, and I do read them as well because there could be someone who's just very disgruntled and you can tell that and there's always going to be those and see if they're the outliers or are people having the same experiences and are people continuing to have, you know, is it the food, is it the experience? And I think you can get away with quite a bit with the food, but when the customer experience is bad, when the service is bad, when there's attitude, People aren't going to stand up for that. They're going to leave. You know, 89% of people actually begin business with your competitor following a bad customer experience. So I think it's really important to recognize, and a lot of restaurants, for example, just say, oh, it's our competitors that are going on and trashing us, so you can't really rely on that. But what I think is really important and what I advise people is that that may be true, and whether the reviews are accurate or not, it's really irrelevant because other people are reading them and they're looking at that to make a decision whether to, to do business with you, whether it's you know a retail store or a restaurant, regardless of any kind of business. So first of all, they should respond to those reviews, positive, and I think positive ones as well, but certainly the negative ones. And you need to let your customers know, even your current customers as well as potential customers, that you care about them and that you care about what they think and that you are listening, you're hearing what they have to say and that you're going to make an effort to, to make them happy. You're not going to grovel, but I think it's important for people to, to know that as a business you actually care. And that's where Yelp can actually be used to their advantage, not necessarily being taken advantage of, but for business to come on and say, we care about you. Let us know what happened and, and figure out how they, keeping true to their brand, want to handle it. But I think it's a way that is very powerful and it's not going away. And I think a lot of places are not utilizing that from a marketing point of view, both to kind of quell the, the negative reviews, but also an opportunity to increase their perception to people who haven't even been there. Yeah. Richie, yeah. Oh, let's see which one of the 20 different ways. <laughs> like there's, this is the hardest part about shows like this when I want to talk on like, each sentence say something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to just go a couple statements here. First off, when you were talking semantics earlier and you're saying customer service, customer experience, and sometimes I've noticed too, I can't remember the exact status, like 4.6 something is actually the best review overall statistically. You're talking about on Yelp? Um, no, just, just across reviews. review platforms. I thought it was 4.3. No, it's like, it's like four. It's 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 right in that zone where it's like, it's it's just enough to know it's good, but it doesn't look like someone's gamed the system. If you're mm-hmm. all, five all five stars, stars. it's just something's fishy, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. because, and it's kind of where I'm going to lead to is to your point. You were um, getting out there a few sentences back. It sometimes it's 
not that something bad didn't happen. They just want to know they're going to be taken care of. In my experience from running retail stores or online stores, it's not that problems aren't going to happen. It's how are they taken care of when a problem happened? And that is sometimes way better than not having something bad happen because they feel like they were actually taken care of. They, they, they went through something, whatever didn't. So, so I'm going to go back to the, um, comment on is the customer always right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting one when it comes to semantics, because if you're a steak restaurant and someone wants a salad, does that mean you're supposed to go run and get them a salad? But if you're in the middle of Texas, that's going to be perfectly fine. But if you were the salad bar in the middle of Texas, <laughs> maybe not. Like, and I'm being super overgeneralized here, obviously. But yeah. it's like it's the customer's always right. The market's always right. The market's talking in reviews. So you just got to be aware. And it's funny, the last, the last comment I'll make on it is, I think this is where it's really important to not only have a company culture and a culture the way that you deal with your clients, but if possible, really actually create a culture amongst your clients themselves. So where they can participate, whether it's pictures of them enjoying your sandwich and they're all loving it and they're all up on the walls, because when that happens, it's amazing how much they'll come to bat for you when mm -hmm. somebody talks bad about you on social. They'll protect you themselves. And I help a friend sell fish online, frozen fish. He picked the hardest thing. And I just remember in the beginning, he was so afraid to go on social. And then we got it going. It was awesome. And then someone's like, how much a pound are you flipping crazy? Like cursing. And then one of the other people are like, yeah, well, have you calculated how much for your boat, your license, your gas? And I was like, yes, we've conquered it. Like this, you know, <laughs> they're sticking up for us now. Well, you know, that kind of happens Love with it. me. I have the vacation rentals and... Every now and then, someone takes their crap show on vacation, and they don't say anything to me, but they get home and they write a scathing one-star review. It's happened probably three times in seven years. Hmm. So what I do is I address what they're complaining about in response, and I get more people saying to me, oh, yeah, we read that crazy guy's review. We knew you were great, and then I keep getting the fives. So he didn't give me an opportunity to address him directly. He just used just it as a straight online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, yeah. Please. Now, say uh, first of all, I, I hear everything. I so agree that it, in fact, one of my um, blog posts and, and talk topics is that you know it's it, we all mess up. To mess up is human, but it's how we handle it that makes the difference. And you're right, Richie. I think people just want to know you care. They want to know that you're involved and that you hear what's going on with them and you, and you make it right. And I love about the culture. It's very interesting about the culture of um, the, the customers to create that culture for you, which is pretty neat because I, I think about that from an not so much from the customers before, but you're right. You're, they're become your, your marketing sales force. You know, it's like getting them online, getting them speaking. When you show a picture of them, then they're vested in what's going on too, because there they are. So mm -hmm. that's really great. Um, and Mary, you know, about the, the reviews, that's, that's the problem is trying to get people to tell you about the problem mm -hmm. and not to then go online afterwards. So one of the things that I've done in one of my inventions of myself is as a real estate agent. I'm licensed in New York and Texas. And one of the things that we do that, again, talking about how we reinvent ourselves many times and how everything really parlays into the next thing and, and, and this customer experience is really kind of an amalgamation of all of that. And so one of the things with my real estate is that we really talk about Asking people up front, and I and I bring this into the to the customer experience. Ask your customers before they walk out your door, before they leave the rental, before they pop offline, whatever it is. You know, figure out it has to be unique. You know, right for your business, but ask in advance. 
So how was your experience? Did you have something that didn't go right or did you have something you didn't like? How can we make it right for you? Let us know. You know, and if you like what you've got, great. Please tell others. And if you don't, please tell us so we can make it right for you. Mm-hmm. So let, let's use a, a real-world example here then. So a business that's just starting from scratch. So as an, as an example, my wife's funeral home, okay? Yeah. You, you're brought in as a consultant because that, that, that is part of what you do, right? I mean, just so we're clear mm-hmm. here. So you, you, yeah. And I don't think we've given you the opportunity to talk about that, but that is uh, you know, a big part of what you do is it's help with the customer experience and creating that environment and, and so on. So uh, picking your brain here for, for a moment, starting mm-hmm. from scratch, no Yelp reviews, no no social media channels, right? None of that fun stuff. If you were coming in as a as a consultant, then to to help, what what are some of the things that you would want to make sure that that business did out of the gate? Some best strategies, tactics. I mean, again, you're hired, you come in. What what do you what what do you do? What's your process? My process of a customer experience transformation really starts with number one is establishing your critical core values and your mission statement. And that will be your North Star. That will be your guiding principles for every single, every single thing that you do, your decisions thereafter. So it's really important to determine who you are, who you want to be to the world, what is your brand promise. What does your brand look like physically? Um, if you have a, stru- a retail or a structural place, a brick and mortar, you know, what about the lighting, the colors, the furniture? All those elements will speak to who you are. Mm-hmm. And those have to still replicate the values that you stand for. So how are you different? And, uh, and to identify and get super clear on that with the word choices so that anyone you then hire will understand who you are and what you expect of them. And all of that should be um, clearly defined and easy to translate into um, the next procedures that follow. So it's your core values that must be super well defined right from the get-go. Nothing should be done before that. Mm -hmm. And so how does that translate then into the customer experience? Are you saying then if you hire a contractor to, to build out the, the facility, they should be aware of your your core values, your your mission statement, your your brand promise. I mean, is are we getting that granular? I think so. Um, and why not? Because that that's your motto. That's your your living, breathing document. And so everybody that touches your business in any way should be aware of what you stand for, what your what your brand, what your core values are about. Mm-hmm. And they can only live up to that if they know. How, how can anyone give you what you expect of them if they have no idea what you stand for, what your expectations are? Mm-hmm. So what's so what's next then? What you, you create this mission statement. You're you're clear on your core values. You understand who you are and and what do you want to be to the world and, and your brand promise and under you know and you're clearly articulating how you're different. What's next? So these, these seem all like foundational pieces, which, which is great, but they also seem a little esoteric, right? Not like in terms of real action, or do these translate into actions? Yeah. No, of course. That's just the first step. So you had asked, what's the first step? So that's yeah. the first step. And then, and then that goes into, um, so it created something that I talk, you know, there's the status quo, the way things are done, and then what I call the inside out, which is your employee experience customer experience, EX to CX. And so that next step is taking those values and applying them for your your aligned asset aligned hiring. So really thinking about who are you bringing in? Do they have the same values and character that you want for your business? Are they in alignment with those core values? Mm-hmm. Um, what is their personality like? What are their goals? What do they believe in? All of those things need to be thought of when they, you do your, your, both your recruiting, because if it's the very beginning of a business, you don't have anyone. If you already have staff and you need to hire more people, then I think it's really important to look and go from the inside out to look at your great people and ask, do you have great family or friends that want to be a part of our team, that want to be a part of our mission and, and our family? 
And so you need to really look, I think internal uh, referrals is the best way to go. And so you're interviewing, you're hiring according to those company values is the next step mm-hmm. um, in the process. And, and then, of course, you need to onboard and you need to start making them aware of both your functional training as well as what, what you stand for. And so it's um, a part of the onboarding process, I think, needs to be something that's fun, that's engaging, that's interactive. And I think it goes beyond training. And I like to use the word educate because you can train a monkey, you can train anyone to smile, but people are gonna feel if that's not right. And so when you educate them on who you are and what you want them to represent to your customers and who you, what you want them to be to each other, and then you're gonna attract those same like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And so that would be the next step. And, and are there really good questions? Like if you, if you had a set of really great questions that should be asked of every potential employee, when you're going through that hiring process, what what are a couple of tips around around that? Because ultimately, they're going to be delivering the customer experience that you want. So, mm-hmm. helping to weed the out the good from the bad. What, what what are some of the the more poignant questions that that you found help to 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 bring the best candidates to the surface? So, yeah, um, I, I have a list of hiring questions when I work with people, and and first I see what their what their um, core values and kind of what their mission statement is so that we make sure it's indicative of what they're looking for because there'll be some broad that should cover for everyone and there'll be some specifically depending upon your brand. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly, you know, ask people, what are their goals, right? Because if you want, you don't want someone that's just in there for a quick buck and to leave. So what are their goals and how can you support their goals? Because when they know that you are invested in them as an employee, they're going to be invested in your business and the success of your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you, you know, their goals, what is their past experience? Although I think a lot of times you get better results and productivity from people who maybe aren't experienced specifically in that area, which you can always train the skills, but to find those people who are like-minded and have the same type of, of values. But, but it's important to see what they did and their skills that and, and the, um, the type of activities and tasks that they've done will tell you also a lot about them. Ask them how did they like that? What, what was their favorite thing? What was their least favorite thing? If they had um, their ideal job, what would it be and what would they be doing? And I also believe in doing uh, personality um, assessments. Mm. And there's some that will tell you their cognitive value, which is their innate um, abilities and what they're t- attracted to naturally versus a skill that they've learned. Skill that they've learned will will change over time. So some of those assessments will be more about that, where something like the Colby or the DISC, but more so the Colby, really talks to you about it, it, your innate um, skills and and what you're drawn to do. Like for me, you know, I, like on the DISC profile, I'm a high DI. And so if you had me in the back doing flow charts and, and, you know, comparing numbers and spreadsheets, forget it, Mm -hmm. uh, that would not be the place for me. Mm -hmm. But put me in front, have me talk to people, and that would be the place for me. So these are things that are important to determine also when you hire and also where you place them into a specific task. Yeah, yeah, all points really well taken. Uh, Mary Rich, anything else before uh, I get, uh, we only got a few minutes left here with, with Jill and I got another question I want to run through, but uh, I want to make sure you guys have an opportunity to to clear anything up that might be on your minds at the moment. I'll let you go first because I could go for another hour asking a question. Yeah. So I'll talk to you. <laughs> I love it. Mary, any, uh, we'll do it, Richie. No, I'm, I'm in agreement with you about the Colby and the disc. I think that gives you some insight certainly into personality types and skill sets, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's tricky. I think customer service versus experience, I deal with it every day, and you just have to do your best and be nice to people mm-hmm. and definitely put them first in whatever service you're offering. I will make one mm-hmm. quick quick comment there. Yeah. We do the other show, Beyond Eight Figures, and it's uncanny how many times we hear who they are as people is what they hire for first and they can train them the skills. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you don't want to, you know, hire a surgeon 
that doesn't know surgery, right? But um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that comes up constantly, and it goes back into the culture thing. If if it's step one is buying into that culture, then who mm-hmm. someone is as a person is going to be what they revert back to when the skill may or may not be there at the beginning. One hundred percent, and that's what I was talking about with the Colby, and that's what the Colby really looks at: who they are, just what are they going to come to naturally. One hundred percent, yeah. Well said. All right. Well, look, I'll uh, I'll just say this, which is you obviously bring uh, a lot of well, different. As you said, you've had different reinventions over the course of your career, and you bring lots of different industries to the table, and the best of the practices in this, and the best of the practices in this, right, to get to to where you are, uh, and being able to help really, you know, people really reinvent their customer experience. Any any last uh, thoughts around reinventing the customer experience, and and what all businesses need to to be thinking about. Yes, I think there's a shift going on right now, and I'm so happy about it because it is in alignment with my core values and what I teach, and that is there, even for large corporations down to small business owners, um, is that people are, yes, of course, the bottom line, you have, you know, if you're not making money, you're not in business, it's a hobby, but mm-hmm. at the same time, there's a shift going on that it's not just only looking at the dollar, at the bottom line. People are looking to how to make it purposeful, their business, and through their people, and to provide an environment for their employees to find purpose and contentment and a way to strive. And that's why I love, you know, referring from people that you know, but also with your employees as you're developing out ideas and building your business. Look within and ask your people within. And the more you communicate with them and you show them you're really important, you make my business successful, then people are going to want to be all in for you. They're going to want to go that extra mile. And so I think businesses are shifting to that more and more need to 